This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Hi there, Dr. Jen Lincoln here. I can't come to the phone right now, but we'll likely have an opening later on. Please leave me a message and I'll be at your cervix. I mean, <laughs> service in no time. Hey everyone, welcome to the Let's Talk About Down There podcast. I'm your host, board certified OBGYN, Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. I am excited about this week's episode because I put out a call to people on my Instagram and I said, hey, if you've got any questions about what it's like being an OBGYN or training or what my job is like, my day to day, go ahead and send them in. And the questions I got, interestingly, were like all about my training and what it's like to get into medical school. So I picked the ones that were not overlapping and I'm going to talk about them today. So I really appreciate those of you that jumped in. And just so you know, if you've got a question, you can call the Viva La Volva voicemail. Yes, I love that name. Came up with it myself at 503-893-2016 and go ahead and leave a voicemail. Or I think this is even easier. Just record a voice DM and shoot it to me on my Instagram and I'll see them and I'll answer them. And you can ask me other questions related to what it's like being an OBGYN or things that I've seen at work or not that I will ever divulge any sort of private patient information questions in general about that or totally unrelated questions about anything down there. So let me start with the first question we're going to answer this week. And I love this caller. She's like, I'm getting just straight to the question. Let's have a listen. Hello. How many years of school do you need to become an OBGYN? How many years of school? A lot. No, I am not here to dissuade people. So to become an OBGYN is the same length of school as becoming any other physician, either an MD or a DO. This is a medical doctor, a doctor of medicine, or a DO is a doctor of osteopathy or an osteopathic physician. These are slightly different schools, slightly different trainings, but at the end of the day, they are all, when you graduate from these medical schools, you can train to be whatever kind of doctor you want. So how many years does it take? Well, it took 12 years of regular school, right? Like graduating high school and then four years of college and then four years of medical school. And then after that, you do something called applying to the match. And we're actually going to talk a lot more about that with my subsequent questions here. But if you want to become a doctor and you know that you want to become a doctor, you can do what I did, which is you go to school straight through and never take a break. I graduated from high school and then did four years of college. I majored in biology and minored in English and chemistry. You do not have to major in the sciences. I think that is a big misconception. There's this idea that it will somehow make you more competitive or it will prepare you better for medical school. And honestly, do not major in something that you think you should just because it's going to get you into school, you know, more likely or, you know, if it's going to prepare you because here's the thing. Well, number one, if you're majoring in something you don't like, it's going to feel horrible and you're going to really not love your college years and it's just going to feel like a lot more work than it should. And number two, it doesn't matter what you do in college. (laughs) Medical school is like what we call drinking from a fire hose, meaning that you can take an entire semester of pharmacology. I did that as part of my college courses. 
And I would say, and I think anybody else who's, who's gone to med school will agree that what we did in one semester in pharmacology in medical school, we probably covered it in two to three weeks. And that's not to scare you. It's just to say that you're going to learn what you need to learn. It's great if you want to learn stuff to think that you're preparing for med school, but you're going to learn what you need to know. Now, that said, you do need to major in things that prepare you for the MCAT, which is the medical college admissions test. It is the test that I hated the most out of all the many exams I've taken. Um, That was the worst. And you also have to have a minimum number of certain kinds of classes in order to apply to medical school. So biology, chemistry, physics, usually English, and some math and some other things. So there's like some basic pre-med requirements that you have to have, regardless if you major in biology or if you like major in music. And so I would suggest that college is the last chance that you're going to have that amount of time to dive into something that you love other than studying medicine. Like you're going to study biology and chemistry and all that stuff for the rest of your your four years in medical school and and beyond in terms of more related to your field. But the point is, is that if you love English literature, you should major in English literature. If you know you want to become a physician and yet you also love art, well, then major in art and just get your pre-med classes. And I think to be honest, it makes you a more interesting applicant, but you shouldn't try to pick majors based on what gets you into med school and residency, because honestly, it's just about succeeding at whatever it is that you choose. So to answer your question, everybody who becomes a doctor has to do college and then four years of medical school. And then after that, you graduate, you are a doctor. It does not mean you can go out and practice. (laughs) After that, you have to do your specialty training. That's what's called residency. And this is where you've gone through your medical school. And I should back up and explain what med school is like. It varies based on med schools and programs are constantly changing. But in general, your first two years of medical school, you're learning the book stuff. And in general, the first year of medical school, you're learning like all the normal stuff. You're learning anatomy. You're learning how the body should work in a normal state with physiology and embryology and, you know, lots of other, you know, developmental classes, those kinds of things. And generally in the second year is when you're learning the abnormal stuff. So pathology, which is really like the main course that we took because it's all the disease processes that can go wrong and different schools will really structure this differently. Some do it as a continuum, but the long and the short of it is that for about the first two years, you're doing mostly book learning and you're in the classroom, there are definitely opportunities during those first two years where you can get into the hospital and shadow doctors and get some clinical hands-on experience. Honestly, I love that because that's what kept me going during those first two years when I felt like all I was doing was studying for tests. And then um, your second two years, so your third and fourth year of medical school is when you're doing clinical rotations. And again, this greatly varies by schools, but all schools have in general rotations that you have to do that are requirements. And these are your basics that everybody needs to know. Internal medicine, surgery, OBGYN, pediatrics, emergency medicine, neurology, psychology, family medicine, those kinds of things. And then there's time either in your fourth year or some programs just kind of combine it all together and say, just by the end of these two clinical years, you've got to do all your required work and you have to do electives. And so you can decide okay, I know I want to be an OBGYN, so I'm going to do extra rotations because I love it. And I want to be competitive as an applicant. And so I'm going to take some extra electives. Or you might do the opposite and be like, I'm not going to do any OBGYN stuff because I'm going to be doing that for the rest of my life. So I want to use this as a time to do other stuff, just like in college when I said about not necessarily majoring in science. And so this is a similar 
situation. And so during all four years, honestly, you're exposed and you're thinking, what, what field, what do I want to be when I grow up? When I'm a real doctor, <laughs> like uh, what was it? Pinocchio when I'm a real boy. And so when you decide, and for me, like I said, okay, I want to be an OBGYN. Your fourth year, you do some extra rotations. You do something called a sub-internship where it's basically like you're pretending you're the intern. This is like your advanced OBGYN rotation. You want to do really good at it because you're trying to, to get in, to get good letters of recommendation, to get into residency. But in the fourth year, you apply to residencies and that is where you do your specialty training. So that's after you graduate medical school. You're already a doctor, but now you're learning your trade, basically. Everyone who graduates med school is a physician, but they are not licensed to practice independently at this point for good reason. <laughs> we just haven't learned enough. And so residency trains you really in your specialty. And residencies can last a different amount of years. So OBGYN is four years. Pediatrics, internal medicine, family medicine usually are three years. Uh, neurosurgery is like 100 years. Not really, <laughs> but it varies. And then you apply and you get some interviews and you interview and there's this process called the match, which was stressful. <laughs> but basically you apply and you interview and you make your list. Let's say you've got 10 places and you go, okay, I want to go to place number one. You rank that number one, rank number two, all the way down to number 10. And then the programs who have interviewed, you know, maybe a couple hundred candidates, rank them from one to whatever. And then a computer program somehow runs the numbers and matches you with the goal of having all the program spots filled and putting you at the highest place you want at the program that wanted you the highest. It's kind of like blind dating, but not really because you've applied and you've gotten to know each other. I don't know. It's, it's a whole process. And then you do your training, your residency. And then at the end of that residency, you are graduated. You can now be an independent practicing, whatever, OBGYN, internal medicine, physician, et cetera. So in terms of the number of years it took me to be an OBGYN, including my 12 years of high school and my four years of college and my four years of medical school, what is that, 20 years? Um, so 20 years of school and then another four years of residency. So 24 years of my life, but I wouldn't have it any other way. And I will say some people do it differently. They don't go straight through. So they might take a year off between high school and college, or they might have a whole other career, a whole other job before they apply to medical school, or they might have applied to medical school and didn't get in because it's, it's hard to get in and it's getting more competitive. And so they'll do something else. They'll get a master's in something or they'll go volunteer or do research and then they'll apply again. So not everybody does the straight shot, straight path through. I did it and I'm glad that I did, but other people would say, I'm so glad I didn't do that. I would much rather have had, you know, two years to travel or have a different career before jumping in. And I think there's no right or wrong answer. But thank you so much for that question. I love school. I don't want to go back to it, but, um, but I do. I love school. All right, let's move on to our next question. This question comes from Chloe. Hi, Dr. Jen. I absolutely love your podcast. It makes me so happy. Um, my name is Chloe, and I just finished my first year of med school, and I'm like 99.9% .9 sure that I will become an OB guy one day. 
Um, so I feel like the residency in OV guy kind of gets a bad rap sometimes. Um, with it just being like brutally long hours, sometimes toxic environments. And I know that's not the case for every residency program, but in the future, like how can I know what the environment truly is in a residency program to know if it's like the right choice for me? Okay, Chloe, first of all, thank you for making my day. You're amazing, not just because you want to be an OBGYN, but you're super sweet. And I so appreciate your question. And for those of you who maybe aren't in the field of medicine, maybe you've seen this reflected elsewhere culturally. I know I'm dating myself, but any of you have seen the show Scrubs? If you haven't, you need to watch it. So many people say, Jen, like, what's the, do you watch Grey's Anatomy? And I, unfortunately, no, I never have. But I feel like I should because I know Shonda Rhimes is killing it when it comes to the accurate abortion content uh, on the show. But I, I know there's like, what is her name? Addison, Dr. Addison. I want to say Addison Ray, but I think that's a TikToker. <laughs> I think it's for Dr. Addison who plays an OBGYN. Anyway, so some of these shows, even Scrubs, my favorite, like they show the OBGYNs as sort of this typecast. And like Chloe alluded to, this sort of reputation as for being toxic. And this is a great moment for us to have a quick clitorally section where I clitorally and literally oftentimes bust myths, but this time I'm saying WTF and it's to this. It's this stereotype that OBGYNs are bitches, that we are strong-willed and we clump around and we walk into the hospital and we're like, do it my way. And we're these tough, maybe badass women, but we're just total bitches and we're mean to everybody. And I clitorally cannot stand that stereotype. Now, where I think it comes from is that, yeah, in our field, it has been in recent years dominated by women. And what happens in a patriarchal society? And yeah, medicine is definitely one of those, even today, even as now. Pretty sure the most recent statistic shows that the majority of medical schools have more females and those assigned female at birth than they do males. But in terms of leadership positions, department chairs, their administrators in the hospital, they're still predominantly men. And so what happens in a field like OBGYN, which sooner than other fields have become more female dominated, is what happens when you've got strong, powerful people in positions of power. A guy would be described as a leader and assertive, and a woman is described as bossy and a bitch. And this affects not only how people see us, but also how we see ourselves. And I can definitely say that that stereotype sometimes is real, that the, I don't know if it's like the chicken or the egg, but I have definitely been in places and I've seen OBGYNs and I'm like, well, now you're just giving them, you're giving them all the, <laughs> the things they need because you are acting this way. But I wonder if it is pushback of working in a hospital and a clinic and in, in a field where we oftentimes we get paid less. That's just the fact of it. We get paid less and we are treated more poorly. I can tell you OBGYN surgery, like GYN surgery gets reimbursed at a lower rate than surgeries performed on men. If you compare urologic compensation for urologic surgeries, so surgeries done by mostly on men, and people with penises compared to female or GYN surgeries that we get paid less. We oftentimes have to fight harder for our surgery block time. 
you just don't get as much help or feel just seen as like gross and icky. And, and a lot of times when patients come into the emergency room, if it's a gynecologic complaint, it's hard for us to get assistance or help because people are like, oh, I, I don't want to help with that pelvic exam or, you know, but somebody has a gunshot wound, everybody goes running. So yes and no, this stereotype is real. And also I think it's amplified based on just the lore of the hospital and also the way some of us have had to act and respond in toxic systems. So to get back to your question of the residency getting a bad rap. So different residencies, like I said earlier, there are different lengths of time. And OBGYN residency is known as a harder one. And I think really we have to zoom out and realize that like all surgical residencies tend to get a reputation of being a bit harder. And I mean, I think it's valid because I did it. It's hard training. So it's four years. And just for people who have questions about what OBGYN residency is, it's, it's kind of like med school in that you are exposed to a whole bunch of stuff you know, the whole breadth of the field. And then you can, you have some electives where you can focus in. And when you graduate OBGYN residency, like I said, you are now an independent practitioner and you can then go out into practice or you can go into subspecialty training. And I've got another question coming up on that soon, so I won't say too much, but you do labor and delivery where you manage normal labor and birth, high-risk labor and birth. You do gynecologic surgery both for benign stuff or non-cancerous as well as cancerous stuff. You rotate on the urogyne service, which urogynecology has to do with pelvic issues like pelvic prolapse and urine leakage. Um, you might do some things you know, like infertility and ultrasound and family planning and abortion care, depending where you are. Um, so you do all of this. It's a mix of night and days. So residency in and of itself is hard for everybody whatever field you're in. And I think OBGYN is challenging because part of the nature of our field is that a whole lot of what we do is completely unscheduled because labor is unmanageable. So yeah, we are operating in the middle of the night routinely. Weekends, nights, holidays, babies don't wait. Sometimes they are emergencies. Our field is really beautiful and fun. And when it's bad, it's bad, right? Stillbirth, loss. Our patients aren't supposed to die. They're usually young and healthy can be really traumatizing. And then you add in all the politics and everything that's going on on top of it, and it's a whole nother layer of stress. So it used to be that residency hours were unlimited and people work insane numbers of hours. And now we have an 80-hour cap on the work week, which, yes, is still a ridiculous amount of hours. And I think that it's important to note that when it comes to that amount of training, it's hard. Do I think it's healthy? Not necessarily. I can also see why you have to train that much. The amount we have to learn in four years is a lot. I honestly think residency in OBGYN should be, it should be an extra year. It should be five years because we have the same length of training when the program started, however, gajillion years ago. And yet we've had all of these new advancements in medicine and surgery and chemotherapy and procedures and outpatient procedures. How can we expect to know it all at the end of the same amount of time? I think we need a bit more time. And then I think we could potentially not work as hard in that time. So I think it's hard no matter what, but it's also finite. It's only four years. I know I can say that now because I'm on the other side of it, but it, it really does go by quickly. And so to answer your question of, does the residency get a bad rap? Yeah, it's hard, but guess what? Those four years are going to go by no matter what. So if you love it and you know that this is what you want to do, and it sounds like you're almost hundred percent, then let's say you picked an easier residency, for example, pediatrics or, you know, and I can say that I'm married to a pediatrician and it's a year shorter and the hours were better. But at the end of that time, would you be happy? Because it's only a couple of years of your life, but what you're training for is the job for the rest of your life. 
So the years are going to pass anyway. How do you want to spend them? And I can tell you, residency was so hard. It was also so fun. And I have friendships with people because we were in it <laughs> 2 a.m. on a Saturday and Christmas morning and, you know, every other hour. We have some of the most hilarious stories, just the memories you make, the bonds. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Now to answer your question of how do you know it's toxic? This is a hard one. So I interviewed at a lot of programs. And that's because I was doing something called the couples match, which is where not only did I need to match, but my husband, who was my fiance at the time, he was matching as well because he was in medical school too. And so we did something called the couples match. And it doesn't have to be somebody you're married to. It can be a even just a friend, they changed it. So it can be somebody you're married to, it can be a sister, a partner, whatever. Um, but basically you enter the both of you and your applications are linked. So you will only match at programs where you both say you would be okay going. So for us, that meant to like, you know, we were only going to match in the same city. So that meant that not only did a program have to take me, but it would have to take him, which ups the ante. So we had to apply to more places to get more combinations So I interviewed all over the United States and I can tell you, I did get a bad vibe at quite a few programs. And that's what I'm going to tell you is you have to go with your gut. I think it's a bit trickier now because my understanding is that since COVID, a lot of these interviews are now remote. And to be honest, the interviews give you a bit of a glimpse into the program. But what really told me the vibe was when we hung out with the residents the night before at the dinner, or when we went to Grand Rounds and we saw them in action, we walked through the halls of the hospital. We saw what the environment looked like, how people were talking to each other. I was at one program where the attendings were yelling at the residents and they knew we were there. And I thought, geez, this is them on a day when they know they have applicants. What is it like when we're not here? I didn't rank that program. I didn't want to be stuck there. So I think it's a bit challenging now if you're not going to go in person. Now, I don't know if that's changing as things change or if there's an opportunity to go check in, but I would say trust your gut. Every program is going to get you the training you need. They're accredited. There's, well, except for abortion, we'll get to that. So yeah, it's good to ask about numbers of deliveries and surgeries, that kind of thing. But I think the questions you should ask the residents are, do you guys hang out outside of residency, like outside of your rotations? Do you talk to the attendings in your downtime? Do the attendings ever come out with you guys? What's the support in place for partners and friends and family members or kids? How do they react? You say you're going to take maternity leave and have a baby. Not that they can't not let you, but what's it actually like? Like, what's the vibe? Your gut will really tell you. And just like with doctor reviews and Yelp reviews, I know there's lots of websites where you can go on and you can see people who've left reviews When I was applying back in the dark ages, it was the Student Doctor Network, SDN. I don't know if that's active anymore or not. I'm sure these still exist, but I encourage you to take them with a grain of salt because some people are just really, you guys could both experience the same thing. And one person would be like, oh my God, it was terrible. They were so rude. Like there's just some people that things are always bad. You know, that person I'm thinking about. So they're going to reflect that in their reviews. And then other people like, I don't know, I think that reviews can be helpful But just like Google reviews for doctors, people either leave reviews if they're amazing or if they're horrible and never in between. And so there's a lot of selection bias. So I think it's important to ask that. I think another question to ask is, how do they handle your work hours? Do the program directors actually respect them or do they tell you to lie and not write down and indicate when you've gone over your work hours because they don't want to get the program in trouble or do they actually care about it? Do they give you days off for doctor's appointments. Um, These are ways of going around the typical questions of like, are you happy? Is is everybody nice here? 
but to really ask meaningful questions. So I think I think that's helpful. And like I said, Chloe, um, residency is hard no matter what. So I know it can be scary to think about doing OBGYN training. It can be intense. It can also be amazing. And really, it's the what comes after that I think is really important. Let's move on to our next question from Ray. She had a couple questions here. Hi, Dr. Lincoln. My name is Ray and I'm a medical student. And I was wondering if you could talk a little more about some of the subspecialties and fellowships within the OB-GYN field. Anyways, love your content and I look forward to hearing from you. Okay, if you heard a cat in the background for my listeners, you're not going crazy. <laughs> Listen to this next message she sent me. Oh, I'm so sorry that you can hear my cat meowing that entire time. She just wants to be a star. What can I say? Okay, so I think that we now have our official Let's Talk About Down There mascot, which I think having a pussycat for the Let's Talk About Down There mascot kind of fitting. So this is karma. So Ray, welcome. Your cat is now the mascot. <laughs> so Ray was asking about subspecialties. And remember how I said that when you finish residency that you can go out and you can do independent practice. So you can be an OBGYN who works as a generalist. So that means you see patients in clinic, both pregnant patients, postpartum patients, patients who go for their annual exam, who come in with GYN issues like bleeding or needing birth control, menopausal care. You have some clinic time, you have some time in the operating room, you do some time in labor and delivery, like the whole smorgasbord. And I did that for the first couple of years of my practice. You can also, instead of doing that, you can do even more training if you just can't get enough. And that is just fine. Um, I did not do that. But you can do that if you want to sub-specialize even more. So training after you finish a residency, any residency is called a fellowship. So you do more training now in an even more specific field. So these usually range from two to three years, and the subspecialties that you'll see in the field of OBGYN are gynecologic oncology. So that's people who train to diagnose and treat and manage female cancers and cancers of those assigned female at birth. You have urogynecology, which has now been renamed female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, which is a mouthful, but it's basically having anything to do with uterine or pelvic organ prolapse or incontinence, leakage, that kind of stuff. There is reproductive endocrinology and infertility, so helping people get pregnant, managing different endocrine disorders related to the reproductive system. There's maternal fetal medicine, which is all things high-risk OB. So these people get trained in doing specialty high-level ultrasound and managing high-risk pregnancies. There is complex family planning. So this is managing complicated cases and, and more advanced sorts of family planning, abortion care, usually later, second trimester and beyond, abortion care, contraception, that kind of stuff. Um, and all these fellowships, people oftentimes will, will do research within their fellowship and some that then continue to work in an academic medical center will continue doing that research as well. So these are the people who are putting out the papers, doing the studies, that kind of stuff. There is what I am, which is um, OBGYN hospital medicine. This is becoming a subspecialty and is not a separate accredited fellowship quite yet, but we do have a fellowship that has just started. I imagine it will get there at some point. 
a lot of times that's how these programs start, but I currently work as an OB hospitalist. So I only work on labor and delivery and I focus my care on the care of pregnant and postpartum people. So everything I do is on labor and delivery, which is oftentimes translates to all the high risk stuff, emergencies, simulation, safety, the whole bunch of stuff. That's a topic for another day. Um, what else? Oh, adolescent medicine. I'm sure there are others that I'm forgetting and I'm so sorry if I have not mentioned you. Um, so it's a lot, right? And so you can do those specialty training. Usually people do them right out of, you know, just like in their fourth year of med school, you apply to residency in your fourth year of residency, you're applying a fellowship. So other people practice as a generalist, general OBGYN for a few years and then decide, oh, I want to go back to training. Um, and it's a similar thing, interview match, that kind of stuff, different levels of competitiveness. And with these fellowships in general, these are in cities because these are at medical centers that get referrals. And then after that, you can go work in your specialty field of choice. What I love about OBGYN is that you can decide to go into the field of obstetrics and gynecology, and then you can really hyper-focus down and be like, I love fertility stuff and just do that. Or you can keep it really broad, or you can change as your career changes, as what you're able to do in terms of your own family and the time that you have and, and how you focus. So I think there's a lot of flexibility, which I love. Um, but Ray had a couple other questions, and let's have a listen to this last question, which also I think goes back to Chloe's, which is, how do you know where to look for a residency program? I'm kind of struggling with really wanting to do OB-GYN and being a little bit intimidated by how competitive the application um, process has been, especially um, with everything with Roe v. Wade and how a lot of people aren't applying to residencies in the South. So it's getting more competitive where I am in New York. So I'm just wondering if you have any words of encouragement. I'm definitely looking into other specialties, specifically like pediatrics in maybe family medicine, but I was just wondering if you had any advice for how to tackle the competitive nature head on and not be scared from it or by it. Anyways, sorry for all these voice memos, but you rock and you're the best. And thank you so much for doing your little Q&A. I cannot wait to listen to the pod. Oh, Ray, it's horrible. Um, yeah, so let's talk about the competitiveness of OBGYN residency. It is true certain residencies and training programs are more competitive than others. I think some of the most competitive are ones that often have the fewer spots and sometimes have really nice lifestyles and salaries afterwards. So they, by essence, become competitive because more people want that. Um, so the ones that are like the most competitive are neurosurgery. I'm trying to think what else. Dermatology, plastic surgery, and OBGYNs getting up there. It's not the most but it's not the easiest to get into. And so, yeah, it's true. You can do medical school. You can do all the things you've been doing. And then you finish medical school and you don't match and you don't get a residency training program spot. And that sucks. And I don't think it's fair. I think I'm concerned because we're adding a lot more medical school spots without at the same time increasing residency training spots. And it's not fair. Medical school is really hard to get into. Like once you get in there and you're doing well, you should get a spot. And you rack up six figures of debt and to come out and not have a spot is terrible. So what people do if they don't match is they might do a couple different things. They might do something where they are able to get into a spot later or they apply into a different field. So like Ray was saying, maybe you apply to OBGYN, you don't get in. Family medicine, which tends to be less competitive if they've got spots open, 
after the match because they might not fill because not everybody wants to be a family medicine doctor because they work hard and they don't get paid a whole lot and it's not fair. Don't even get me started, but then you might take that spot. Or you might wait a year and do research or something and then apply again in the next year. Not really the whole point of this podcast, but it is true that OBGYN residency is getting more competitive. And looking here, there were a couple studies. I will include these in the references and resources. But one study that just came out showed that between 2003 to 2022, the normalized competitive index, which I didn't read the whole study like you guys can, it's it increased by 22%. So it just meant that it got more competitive, which is really concerning because we know that the country overall has a shortage of physicians that will be projected to be worse in coming years. This was even before the pandemic and a shortage of OBGYNs as we're seeing more and more OBGYNs drop out of the field because malpractice is really high. And then like Ray said, with the fall of Roe, a lot of physicians don't want to practice in these states because they don't want to go to jail. And I understand that. And so if we then are making it more competitive or we're not opening up spots, it's just, it, I'm just a bit concerned. So they went and they looked at people who were successful in the match. And between 2007 and 2021, researchers saw that people who were successful had more research experiences, more volunteer experiences, and more work experiences. So if you want to think, well, how can I be successful? You can consider adding these things to what you're doing in medical school to make you successful. I think that there's no one way to say, if you do all these things, you'll get a spot. I think that you have to be the best student you can be. You try to do really well in all your classes, all your rotations, especially your OBGYN rotation. You do some extra electives within the field so that you can get letters of recommendation. So when you're applying to residency, you've got letters from people in OBGYN who say, you know, Ray is amazing. She showed up early. She worked hard. She was, you know, super sharp. She had really good surgical hands. So basically you're just, you know, you just show up early, stay late. You work really hard. Um, maybe you do some OBGYN research or maybe you do some electives or you not just volunteer in the reproductive clinic, but you like start something like what sets you apart and what sets, what do you love? Don't just do it to check a box. Cause then people are going to see right through it. But like, what makes you passionate? Is it family planning? Okay, cool. What can you do? What can you advocate for? How can you show that you took ownership and, and took a leadership role? I think that it varies to every, you know, every applicant is going to be strong in their own way. I do want to call this out. Even before the fall of Roe, we knew that 45% of OBGYN residents were being trained in states where abortion was banned or restricted, meaning that they weren't getting adequate training. And that's, uh, that's a whole episode for another day. But I want to share this really interesting literature that just came out. So after Roe fell and like Ray said, you know, people aren't going to want to apply to the South to do OBGYN training because why would you choose to go train in Texas? If you know you're number one, not going to get the abortion training you need, or if you want it, number two, you have to travel somewhere to get this training somewhere else, which is really disruptive. Or number three, you have to constantly watch your back that if you talk about abortion or something like that, you're worried you're going to get reported and residency is hard enough without adding all this political bullshit on top of it. So the study came out just a couple weeks ago talking about the training location preferences of U.S. medical school graduates after Dobbs fell. What they saw shocker is that fewer people went into OBGYN. So seniors, fourth-year medical students applying, overall there was a 5% decrease number of people, 5.2% fewer students going into OBGYN. And that's actually the first time this happened. So in 2022, 4.6% more students applied to OBGYN. And then in 2023, 
that dropped. So not only did it not increase or, you know, even vary a little bit, that's a big drop. And I just told you that we're facing shortages. So now we have even fewer students who want to become OBGYNs because they're afraid of all this stuff. And when you look at this graph, and I'll put this in the notes, when you look at this, you see that those rates are lowest where the, where the biggest decrease is, is in states where abortions are banned. So students are saying, why would I want to be practicing in a state that could potentially throw me behind bars? And I think that's a real reasonable response. And another article, which again, I will put in the show notes, you know, talks about how OBGYN has been a competitive specialty. It is competitive, but that people are now disproportionately applying to where they go because they want to get abortion training. And I think this is just like what you said, where now in states like New York and other places, Washington, California, residency applications are going up because students are saying, I want to go where I can actually be trained to do my job. Shocker. Imagine that. Which means more people apply there, which means now it's even harder. So Dr. Ian Fields, who is the OBGYN residency program director at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, which is where I did my residency, said that applications to there, to OHSU, increased by 15%. And here in Oregon, we have one of the best abortion laws in terms of access and protections. Program applications jumped by 15%. That's a lot more people applying there. So students are showing, they're voting their feet, right? They're saying, I want to go to a place like Oregon, Washington, California, New York, which is great for us. We get to pick from some amazing people, but it makes it more competitive for you. And then it makes it not as fair for people in states like Louisiana, Florida, Texas, these people deserve good doctors and they're not coming there because they're scared. And I understand that. So when it comes to what to do, I think you have to decide. So you can apply everywhere, right? Or you can choose to apply only in states where abortion training is offered because that's important to you. That's great if you get a spot because you know you're good to go. It's not so great if you're worried about competitiveness. Or number three, maybe you choose to apply only to banned states because that's really important to you that those people not be forgotten. And maybe there's the benefit that it's slightly less competitive, but you know that if you want abortion training, you've got to travel and you maybe have some extra stressors, but maybe you're so into advocacy and showing up that you are going to use that. And maybe that means something to you that you're not, the people of Alabama won't be forgotten because you're going to be there. And you're not only going to learn how to be an OBGYN and learn your trade, but you're going to show up and you're going to fight back and you know, it, it just depends. So I think overall, what you need to do is just be the best student you can be. Demonstrate why you love this field and know that every application looks different. So these questions were so fun. I loved answering this. If you've got other questions about what it's like to be a doctor, OBGYN, either from the medical student, pre-med student side or from the patient side, and you're like, what do doctors really think of this? What does an OBGYN really mean when, when they say this? Or feel free to send them in. Um, I love answering these questions. And as always, stay safe, have fun, happy learning. And thank you all for giving me the chance to, to chat with you. And once again, welcome to our pussycat, the mascot of Let's Talk About Down There. Meow. <laughs> Bye-bye, friends. Okay, it's that time where I ask you to rate, review, and follow on your favorite podcast app because we know that's how we get more people talking. So call in at 503-893-2016 and join me online at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. So let's keep the conversation going, my friends. Call in, leave a question, and know that it's okay to have questions about your body and we're gonna answer them. Yeah.